Father, we are grateful to be yours, grateful to have the opportunity uh, to be together, to come underneath your word. And Father, we ask now that you would help us as we study this text, Lord, that we would not just learn about this passage, but that we would be transformed by the truths it contains. And Father, we know that apart from your Spirit's coming and being with us and helping us, that we have gathered uh, in vain. So Lord, we pray that you would be with us, empower us, strengthen us uh, to return praise and worship to you as we study this passage. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, turn your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 3. This morning we'll be looking at verses 13 to 19. At the call of the twelve apostles. I've titled the sermon, Ordinary People, Extraordinary Calling. Ordinary People, Extraordinary Calling. And I've given it that title because I think that's exactly what we see in this passage. Ordinary men who had lived most of their lives in obscurity and really insignificance, unknown, unheard of, but were unexpectedly called out of their obscurity and entrusted with the most extraordinary responsibility imaginable. From a human perspective, God in Christ entrusted into their fallible, feeble hands the entirety of His kingdom work on earth. What we see in this text is that Jesus begins here to transfer the burden of gospel ministry onto the shoulders of these 12 simple, ordinary men who would become the stewards of God's mission on earth. And then they would pass that baton on to us. And so as we look at the extraordinary call that these men receive, we're also looking at the extraordinary call that we ourselves have received. Not in the sense of a supernatural call from heaven. Jesus didn't knock on our door. Jesus didn't you know, um, come in some supernatural way and, and show us, speak to us audibly. He didn't do some sort of uh, tangible miracle, as it were, but the work he did in our hearts to save us was nonetheless miraculous and supernatural. The way that we have received this call, though, from the apostles is by a baton. They received the call to apostleship, and God's strategy was that that work, that extraordinary ministry of representing God on earth, would be passed to you and I. And in one sense, this is nothing more than what Adam and Eve were tasked to do in the garden. Genesis 1. They were made in God's image, and their responsibility as image bearers of God was to image God, to be His representatives. But we know they failed. And God in Christ was restoring and is restoring the image, the fallen image of man, fallen image of God in man, rather, And in this text, we see that God's agenda is to restore that image first through Christ, but then to transfer that ministry onto the likes of you and I, so that we will represent God in this world. 
So we are going to zero in on the call of the 12, but it is especially relevant for us as well. So we're going to be looking at these apostles, and by the, the length of my notes, we'll probably do it for two Sundays. Um, but we want to spend some time thinking about these men. And from our perspective, we're something like 2,000 years down the road now, we can look at these 12 men, and we can see, especially in the book of Acts, we can see their courage and their strength. We read of their feats and accomplishments in the Acts of the Apostles. We see that they were full of the Spirit of God. They stood fearlessly against governments, against mobs of people, and they persisted faithfully in proclaiming the truth even when they were opposed. And from the book of Acts, they sort of look like giants to us. Uh, They are men who are, maybe they appear at least, to be men cut from a different cloth or men of a different breed. But in our text this morning, we're reminded that these 12 men were actually very ordinary and basic. They were men who, by the grace of God, were elevated to a level of courage and confidence in the Lord and zeal for the Lord that is actually attainable by you and I. They were elevated by God's grace to rise up to the level of the calling that they had received. Now, we, like I said, are not called to be apostles. That's, you, you can't meet the qualifications for that. But we do have the same responsibility to bear God's image and to represent Him on the earth. We are ambassadors for Christ, and we'll explore that a bit. But we also have the same master as them. And we also have the same spirit that indwelt these brothers and empowered them to carry out the extraordinary things that God called them to do. So, in a word, they were, extra- they were ordinary men who had received from God an extraordinary call. God called them, and notice this, God called them, and then He transformed them. He called them, and then He transformed them. At the beginning of this call... They were not what they needed to be. But the Lord Jesus took them and made them into what they were not for His glory. And that is just the way God works. That's His strategy. He takes unlikely men, women, children. He's not limited to working with adults only. He works in men, women, children. He takes them and then He equips them by His grace to rise to the height of the calling that He calls them to. Okay, that's the divine strategy. He takes those who are weak and He calls them to a work that feels outside of their capacity. Right? You've experienced that? It's a work that feels too large for you to accomplish. And God does this so that we feel inadequate. And then, when we are low, when we adequately sense our inadequacy, God comes and strengthens us to carry out the work He's given us to do. And that is what we see in the lives of these 12 men. What I want to do with you this morning is just to highlight that strategy. 
by looking at several aspects of the call of the 12 apostles in Mark 3. And my hope for you this morning is that you will be encouraged, not by these men, but as Pastor Terry pointed out to us last week, that you'll be encouraged by the God who stood behind these men, by the Lord Jesus, who called these men and then elevated them, equipped them to do the work he had given them to do. So with that in mind, we stand with me as we read Mark 3. We'll read verses 13 all the way down through verse 19. Mark 3, beginning in verse 13. And he, that's Jesus, went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. And Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. You may be seated. Now I want to look with you at three aspects of this call. Three aspects. There are more, of course, that we could draw out, but there are three, which is probably more than I can handle, like I said this morning. Uh, But we maybe, Lord willing, we'll get through the first two. Three aspects that jumped out to me, or features that jumped out to me from this text as I studied it this week. And what I want to do is just share those with you and hopefully make some applications along the way. And the first aspect that I want you to see that I think really jumped out at me, at least, is the sovereign dimension of this call. The sovereign dimension of this call. That's what we see in verse 13. Look there with me. And he, Jesus, went up on the mountain and he summoned those whom he himself wanted and they came to him. Sovereign aspect. He went up to the mountain and he summoned or called those whom he Wanted, And then if you look at verse 14, it says, He appointed them. Now, who's in charge here? Clearly, Jesus is the one calling the shots. That much is clear. And it actually seems like Mark is just wanting to make that clear. Because up to this point, if you were reading from a human perspective, it would seem like the crowds might be in charge. Right, Because Jesus tries to get away from them with his disciples, and he keeps failing to get away. But all of a sudden, when Jesus really wants to get away, he's able to get away. So he went up on the mountain, and he summoned the twelve. It's a sovereign calling. Jesus is the one doing the work. He's the one initiating The disciples are not doing that. The disciples don't submit applications for the apostolic office. They're not seeking it out for themselves. Jesus, as we've already seen, has come to them, and we saw that in chapter 1, where he came to these men. They're out doing their work, and he comes to them. And he calls them, and it's as if they were compelled to follow him, because they were compelled to follow him. And now, in this moment, he's summoning them 
to be his apostles. This is a unilateral, sovereign appointment by Christ. And I love the phrase in verse 13. He summoned those whom he himself wanted. He summoned those whom he himself wanted. Or as the ESV puts it, he called to him those whom he desired. He wasn't just stuck with these guys. These were the ones he wanted. There's a necessity, actually there's no necessity rather, on on Jesus' part. No necessity. He's not compelled to get these guys. Uh, This is just not all that he has. He, He goes to these men, he calls them because they are the ones that he desires. He's not bound to call them. He calls them because he wants them. He desires them. These specific men are the ones upon whom Jesus has his heart set. Now, if you know the disciples, think about your study of the Gospels, you should ask yourself, why would he want these guys? What is he doing? Well, we'll find out, but at this point, at the beginning, Mark is wanting to be very clear that Jesus is calling only those he desires. These men, as we know, they are not the cream of the crop. They have weaknesses and much baggage. They're slow to believe Jesus, slow to learn from him, slow to follow him properly. But they are the men Jesus wants. And I will tell you, there is a world of comfort in that reality. A world of comfort. In the little phrase... He summoned those he himself wanted. It's a comfort for a couple of reasons. One, because it's a reminder of God's sovereignty. He's in the heavens. He does all that he wants, all he desires. And we consider that he's also perfectly wise. He's all-knowing. And that it's not as if he's choosing these men without really knowing what he's getting into. It's not as if he, you know, they're able to sort of keep something under the radar. Don't let him see that. We don't want him to know that. No, he knows them fully, completely. He knows who's going to betray him. He knows who's going to deny him. He knows who's going who's to fall flat on their face, all of them. He knows it all. He knows their faults. He knows their blemishes. We need to see, and I think Mark is sort of drawing this out for us, that Jesus is not making a mistake here. It's not like Jesus is unfamiliar with these men. He knows them. In fact, he knows them more than they know themselves. He knows what he's getting into. The same is true, of course, when he called you to salvation. I don't know if you've ever had the thought uh, that maybe the Lord made a mistake when he called on me. Uh, Why has he called me for this task? Why has he appointed me for this office? Why am I the one responsible for these little souls in my home? Why am I the one to share the gospel with my professor at college? You know, why am I the one that's here? Well, you're there because you were sovereignly situated, sovereignly appointed. Jesus has not made a mistake. And we'll explore that a little bit further in a minute. 
But it's a good reminder here for us that Jesus does not make mistakes. If he has providentially placed you somewhere, it's not accidental. If he saves you, he knew the, the depth and height and breadth of your sin before he called you. And he knows uh, the wicked places of your heart that you're not even familiar with at this point. He knows it all. Yet he set his love upon you, Christian. He only calls those whom he desires. And he's sovereign and he situates you in particular places at particular times. You're never in a place by accident. Every moment of your life, according to Psalm 139, 16, is written out in his book before you live one day. He never puts you in a situation that is mistaken. There's no divine oversight. You are where you are by divine appointment. And every moment is under the sovereign hand of God. You say, well, I just can't handle this one. This is too big for me. I can't handle this situation. I can't be the one to speak here. I can't handle the weight of this trial. Well, this text reminds us that God only calls those He desires. He only puts His people in the place He has them in. He's the one in charge. He's the one who has done this. If you are there, He has placed you there. God is ultimate. People may have made mistakes along the way. You might have snuck in accidentally. But God is even sovereign over that. And He has His people where they are at exactly the right time. You are where you are by divine appointment. So you can never look at your situation and say, this was a mistake. God messed up. No, in His impeccable wisdom, God has you where you are. That is a comfort in this way, the sovereign aspect of this call was designed to bring courage and confidence into the heart of these 12 men. If they went out and sought this on their own, then they could have said, we duped Jesus. But Jesus came to them. He called them. That's exactly the aspect of their call that Jesus brings out in John 15. I'm trying to show you that the sovereign dimension of the call should inject you with courage and confidence. That's my point. That's what I'm trying to get out here, okay? So John 15, uh, Jesus uses the sovereign dimension of the apostles' calling to fill them with confidence and courage. So let me give you the, the context here. John 15 is the middle of John 13 to 16, which is called the farewell discourse. You'll remember... The farewell discourse is Jesus saying goodbye to the men, these 12 men, because Jesus is about to be crucified and ascend into heaven, which is what we read in Acts chapter 1. And these men are hearing from Jesus that he is about to leave them. And they have been with him. And they are confused about where Jesus is going, and they're discouraged by the fact that he is leaving them. Of course, there had to be all sorts of internal turmoil, and that sort of comes out as we read the farewell discourse. But Jesus, in this, these series of chapters, 13, 14, 15, sets out to comfort these apostles, and this is what he does in John 15. John chapter 15, he writes, he tells them, let me flip over there because I don't have it written down, the verse reference. 
John chapter 15. Yeah, in verse 16. He tells them, reminds them rather, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. Now, you've got to just understand the context. Remember, Jesus is leaving. These men are just going to be, they're discouraged. They're confused. What's going to happen to us, Jesus? We can't handle this. Although Peter might have been saying we can't handle it. Uh, But the other apostles, for sure, are scared, nervous, worried. How are we going to do this? How are we going to fulfill this role? What's going to happen? And Jesus injects them with some confidence by reminding them, hey, you didn't get yourself into this mess. I did it. I'm the one who came to you, remember? You were fishing. I called you. Do you remember that day on the mountain, Mark chapter 3? I came to you. I chose you. And I appointed you. And because that's true, the next part of the verse, he's in charge of the results. He's in charge of the outcomes. Look at verse 16. You didn't choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you would utterly fail. No. I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. Because the call here of the apostles was sovereign and it was the ones Jesus wanted and he's omniscient and he knows them intimately more than they know themselves. He knew exactly what he was doing. And he had determined that these men would be fruitful. Isn't that an encouragement? It's a, it's a shot in the arm, courage and strength and confidence. Not in yourself, but in God. In the fear of the Lord is strong confidence. Not because you can do it, but because God has called you here. God is the one who gave you those children, and God is the one who's going to equip you to shepherd them well. God is the one who's given you that boss, And he will help you to proclaim the truth of the gospel to them. He appointed you that you would bear fruit. His his interests are tied up in yours. And that's his doing. Your flourishing and your fruitfulness reflects upon whom? The sovereign God who called you. He's the vine dresser. I don't know about you, uh, but... I don't want a garden that's not going to be fruitful. And as far as it depends on me, if I have the power and the capacity to make the vine bear fruit, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make it bear fruit. I don't have that capacity. That's why Savannah does most of the gardening for us. Um, But the Lord God does. He's the vine dresser. And his desire is not that the vine would wither and die but that he, it would flourish and be fruitful. He oversees you and your fruitfulness. And he's determined that you will bear fruit. Whatever hurdle, whatever task seems too large, you have to remember that the God, this is a cliche phrase, but it's so true, the God who has called you to it will do what? He will do it, right? He will do it, and he will see you through it. And he'll help you to be faithful. So, Jesus 
remind these men when they are most tempted to be discouraged and give up and quit and say, I can't go any further. He reminds them, listen, I am the one who got you here. Your job is not to debate whether or not I made a mistake. That's not your job. I called you here. I've given you this assignment. Your job is to abide in my word, abide with me, and be faithful and to trust that I will take care of all of the outcomes. A sovereign call always accomplishes sovereign purposes. Don't forget that. Sovereign call always accomplishes sovereign purposes. So that's the first dimension of the call. It was sovereign. It was purposeful. Sovereign. He knew what he was getting into. He called the right men, although they were not the most qualified, of course. There's a second aspect that I want us to see, and that is in verses 14 to 15. It was a sovereign call, but it was also a very strategic call. Strategic call. I've alluded to this already, but Jesus knew his time on earth was going to be very short. Jesus' ministry was three years or so. And at this point, believe it or not, Mark 3, he's almost halfway through. Almost halfway through his ministry. And although his popularity has skyrocketed, so has the opposition to him. We saw in chapter 3 and verse 6 that there's already a plot being hatched to destroy Jesus. And Jesus knows this. He knows what's happening. In fact, he was aware, because he's omniscient, he was aware of this plot before it even hatched. He was aware when he entered the world that the plan was for him not to have a permanent earthly ministry right out of the gate. He came to the earth with a clear understanding that God's plan was for him to be crucified. The Father's plan was the, the crucifixion of the Son. The Son's responsibility was to accomplish it. And so a few chapters later, Mark chapter 8, Jesus is going to tell his disciples, Mark chapter 8, verse 31, he's going to tell them what's coming. He says, verse 31, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and three days rise, and after three days, rise again. Jesus knew this. He knew that his ministry on earth was going to be short. And he says the Son of Man must suffer. It wasn't optional. It was inevitable. It's the very reason for which he entered the world. And this, of course, goes all the way back to the Old Testament, all the way back to Isaiah 53, where we see that the Messiah would not just be a sovereign king. He would be, and he will be, and he is. But he would also be a suffering servant. And Mark's agenda, largely, is to demonstrate that the Messiah will be a suffering servant. We know from Isaiah 53 that Jesus would take the punishment that his people deserved on himself. He would be treated as a sinner, as a lamb led to the slaughter, in order that he might take the stroke of God's precious, sinful people. 
The prophecy of Isaiah 53 puts it this way in verse 11, Isaiah 53, 11. It says that the Messiah would suffer such a gruesome death that the Father would see it and be satisfied. Satisfied why? Because the wrath of the Father is poured out on the Son. And out of the anguish of his soul, says Isaiah 53, he will see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the text says, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. And notice this last phrase, he will bear their iniquities. He would be a sin-bearing sacrifice for his people. Jesus knew that. And he was going to broach the, <laughs> the discussion with his disciples in Mark 8. But you remember, it doesn't go so well. Uh, Peter doesn't like that. And the, uh, the other apostles don't like that either. Why? Because they can't comprehend a Messiah who would suffer. But Jesus knows exactly what is happening. It's a good reminder again. Uh, oftentimes, we can't make sense of the moment. We don't know what's happening. But who is sovereign and who's in charge? He has a strategy. He has a purpose. He has an intention. In this moment... A year and a half away from Jesus' crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and then ascension, Jesus knows it's coming. He knows that it's coming quickly, and he knows that he needs to prepare these men to represent him while he is gone. They will be his earthly ambassadors. They will speak for him. They will act for him. They will represent him on the earth and that's the strategy dimension here jesus is about to leave he needs someone to be in his place on earth now we know john 14 the spirit of god will come and be the comforter and empower these men but right now we're looking from the human perspective really and the strategy is that these 12 men will be the agents through which jesus works when he is ascended into heaven they are the ones who will officially represent him that's what we see in verse 14 the text says mark 3 verse 14 and he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles now that last phrase whom he also named apostles is not in the king james the niv or the nasb which is what i'm reading from it's not in those. It's not included in the majority of ancient manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark either, which is why you don't have it in the NAS, King James, or the NIV. However, the two oldest manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark, they include that little phrase, whom he also named apostles, which is why the ESV and the LSB include the phrase, and I'm going to include it as well because I think it's part of the original text and it fits perfectly with the narrative. And it's also referenced in Luke 6, verse 13, which is the parallel passage. So, here's the point. Jesus appoints the twelve, whom he also named apostles. Apostles were and are, they were and are official representatives. The word essentially means one who is sent. First to someone who is dispatched for a very specific purpose like a messenger in sort of a lower A sense, or in a capital A apostle sense, 
someone who is a delegate or an ambassador. The significance here is that these 12 men, at, the, at this particular moment, when Jesus is appointing them, it's a commissioning service. They are being dedicated, appointed, designated as the official representatives of Jesus on earth. It's an extraordinary calling. Who does Jesus image? John 1. He's the image, right? He's the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1, John 1. Jesus is the perfect expression in Hebrews 1. He's the the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is the representative of the Father on earth. He's God in flesh. Now these men are going to carry the baton while Jesus is away. It's like, uh, on a very low, much lower scale, it's like President Biden coming to you and saying, hey, um, I'm going to be gone this week. Can you handle the job? Now, some of you are saying, yeah, I could do a better job than he's doing. (laughs) That's not the point. The point being, this is an extraordinary call. One that I think we don't quite feel. It's almost incomprehensible that this would be charged to these 12 men. And then that charge is passed along to us to image the Lord and represent Him as His ambassadors. But these men, back to the apostles, they are going to represent Jesus to the extent that Jesus will say in Matthew 10, 40, Whoever receives you, receives me. In John 13, 20, he will tell them, Truly I say to you, whoever receives the one I send, receives me. And again, in Luke 10, 16, the one who listens to you, listen to this. The one who listens to you, apostles, listens to me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. That is an extraordinary call. And that's also why we have the New Testament. and We take it to be the word of Christ. Which is why we don't elevate the words in red above the words in black. Right? Because the apostles spoke for Jesus. To such an extent that if you reject the apostles, you reject the Lord Jesus himself. These men will be so identified with Jesus that to reject them is to reject the promised Messiah. Now, here's a major question. How do you train men for this kind of call? How how do you get men ready to be this kind of representative? That's what we see in verse 14. And he appointed 12, the next phrase, so that they would be with him. That's how you do it. You get them with Jesus. That's the training methodology for Jesus. The preparation for the task of apostleship was for these men to simply be with Jesus. No seminary, no you know, theoretical reading on how to inaugurate a messianic kingdom. You know, they don't need that. 
All they need is to be with Jesus, to see Jesus in action, to see him receive the widow tenderly, to see him respond to the, uh, uh, the opposition of the Pharisees, to see him respond to Peter's opposition. They need to see Jesus in action, and then they need to imitate him. They need, in short, to be like Christ. As one writer put it, Jesus had no formal school, no seminaries, no outlined course of study, no periodic membership classes in which he enrolled these men. Amazing as it may seem, all Jesus did to teach these men his way was to draw them close to himself. He was his own school and curriculum. That's all they needed, to be with Jesus. And we know that this method was incredibly effective. How do we know that? Why don't you flip with me to Acts chapter 4. You could say it was effective because it was God's way. That's true. But in Acts 4, it's really interesting. You remember Peter and John had been imprisoned for preaching the gospel. And then they were brought before Caiaphas and the religious leaders of Israel to be questioned. And we'll pick up in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, let it be made known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He, Jesus, is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Peter was transformed. We'll talk about that probably next week. But I want you to notice is the next verse, verse 13. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as what? Having been with Jesus. It's interesting. Verse 13 says, that it was only after, if you look at the text, it was only after they understood that Peter and John were uneducated and untrained, that they then began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. I take that to mean that these men were clearly not trained in the normal schools. So their initial response is, okay, these are rogue disciples of someone, they're acting outrageous. Uh, what school are they from? No, they're not trained, they're not educated. Oh, they have been with Jesus. They have been with Jesus. Why? Because they're acting like they've been with Jesus. They're doing the same things that Jesus did. Heal the sick man. They're, the religious leaders are upset with that, just like they were upset with Jesus. They're confident, standing on the word of God, and that's what they say. They observe the confidence of Peter and John, not self-confidence. Peter had walked that road. He had been um, reformed at this point. His confidence is now in the Lord. 
and they stand courageously on the word of God against the religious leaders. And they were acting, in short, as if they had been with Jesus. They were men who had learned in Christ's school. And finally, at this point, in the book of Acts, they were representing him well. They had been transformed. They were finally acting like their Lord. Luke 6.40 is a principle of discipleship. A disciple, when he is fully trained, will be like his master. And that's what we see in Acts 4. Disciples, fully trained, reflect their master. And here these men have finally been trained. And they are reflecting their master. Now, you can flip back to Mark 3. We see that in verse 14, that Jesus, of course, would train these men to be their representative, his representatives by them simply being with him. And then, the second part of verse 14, we see that the point of it all was so that he would be able to send them out to preach. You see that? He might send them or could send them out to preach. So they're not merely imitating Jesus' actions. They were sent out by Jesus to propagate his message, the gospel of the kingdom. They were to be his official representatives in action by what they did and by what they proclaimed. They were to learn from Jesus, to hear him teach, preach the Old Testament, to hear him declare Scripture fulfilled. And then they were to proclaim that gospel message to the world, to write it down. And these men would eventually become the foundation of the church itself, Ephesians 2.20. Now, I want to make a point here. Um, so I'm going to say a couple of things that are a little bit uh, nuanced, and I'm giving you a, um, an alert here. So if you're kind of vaguely halfway listening, you should uh, you know, sit up, buckle your seatbelt, and we're going to talk a little bit about something a little bit controversial. Now, from this point forward, these 12 men will become the official delegates of God on earth. Amen? Okay, that's true. They will be the ones who proclaim the truth of God to the world. Of course, after the ascension, they will be empowered by the Spirit to be God's representatives. Now, the reason I'm stressing that, and I want you to pay attention, is because at this point in the narrative, Mark chapter 3, who considers themselves to be the only true representatives of God? The Pharisees. They're the ones who want to kill Jesus. Why do they want to kill Jesus? Because he's misrepresenting God. That's what they're saying. That's what they're thinking. He's doing things that God would not have him do on the Sabbath. How dare him? All right, so they're opposed, and it's a crisis of leadership. Who's going to be the ones who represent God faithfully? Will it be the self-righteous Pharisees, or will it be Jesus, the Son of God? That's kind of the stage, the battle. These Pharisees have positioned themselves as the gatekeepers of the Word of God, and they view themselves as having the final authority on the law itself. And so they oppose Jesus. They viewed Jesus as a rogue rabbi who needed to get in line with their leadership. They needed to come underneath their authority. It, I think it's fair to say that the Pharisees viewed themselves as something like apostles. If an apostle is a representative, which it is, then the Pharisees saw themselves in that role. And at this point in the text, Mark 3, 
Jesus is making a deliberate break with this brand of representation. He is saying, this is not God. This is not the Father. These men are not representing God properly. Of course, Jesus himself is the expression, the full expression of God. The image of the invisible God. But what Jesus is doing here, he's breaking with them and he's calling 12 men who will be his apostles, who will now be the official representatives of God on earth. So we have to see this call of the 12 as an indictment of the leadership of Israel. That's part of the strategy of it all. It's an indictment on these men, and it indicates for us that these 12 men will be the new leaders of God's people. That's not to say that Israel is no more. I'm not talking about um, replacement here. I'm talking about a replacement of leadership. The, the Pharisees, as we, as we have seen, had misrepresented God, misinterpreted the Word of God, had laid over the Word of God all their traditions, and they were wrong. And Jesus is coming in, and He's correcting error. We've seen Him do that in His teaching. And in this moment, He's restoring the leadership of God's people to its proper place. Let me show you that. Luke twenty-two thirty. This is why there are twelve. Why are there 12 apostles and not 7? 7 is the number of perfection. Why not 10? 12 is not arbitrary. 12 is an important number. It's the number of the patriarchs in Israel. It's the number of the tribes in Israel. And what I'm saying is that these 12 men will now be put in charge as leaders of the people of God. Luke twenty-two thirty. You are those, Jesus speaking to the twelve apostles, contextually, said, You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging who? The twelve tribes of Israel. Not the Pharisees. They're not the ones who get to say it, have the final say. And then look in Matthew 19, 28. If you want to flip over there, that way you can see it with your own eyes. Matthew 19, 28. This is a little more explicit in, in the Gospel of Matthew. Again, he says, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, I take that to mean a physical throne. When the Son of Man has come, there's a full restoration. This is not regeneration like heart regeneration, spiritual regeneration. This is the restoration of the Messiah's kingdom. When the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Twelve thrones for twelve apostles. Twelve leaders, judges, of the people of Israel. So my point here is not to get, you know, I don't want to get uh, too messy and too um, confused about this. I'm just trying to make the point that what Jesus is doing is not replacing Israel. That's not what he's doing. He's replacing Israel's perverted leadership. And he's doing so by placing his 12 men in the position of leadership. So Jesus indicts the apostate leadership of Israel. 
And he puts his men in place. Unlikely men. Not theologically educated. uh, Not trained in the best rabbinical schools. But men who will learn in Christ's school. And they will represent him faithfully. So we need to see this as a restoration and reformation of proper leadership to the, of the people of God. Now, moving on. Verse 15 tells us that these men who would represent God officially and be the leaders of uh, the people of God and form the foundation of the church of God, these men, verse 15 says, would, would have supernatural abilities that would confirm and affirm them as representatives. Verse 15 says they were given the authority to cast out demons, or the demons. Supernatural ability, of course, connected to the authority of Jesus Christ. It makes sense. These are men who are Christ's representatives. They go about bearing a similar authority and power to confirm their unique role. According to Luke 9.1, they're also given the ability to heal diseases as well. These were supernatural abilities. We've said that about Christ's healings and miracles. They were there to confirm Jesus as the Messiah. They were there to confirm, authenticate Jesus as the messenger of God. So they're given signs. In 2 Corinthians 12, 12, these signs, this ability to do signs, wonders, that sort of thing, is called the signs of an apostle. If you read the book of Acts, you'll see that all of these supernatural signs, wonders, these all orbit around the apostles. The apostles were the ones, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, Paul's, we see Paul doing this, were the ones regulating the use of these supernatural gifts. All of the gifting, all these supernatural gifts, revelation, revelatory gifts, were confirmed and overseen by men who were apostles. We see this also in the book of Acts. Now, in closing, uh, why don't you turn to the book of Acts? Really quickly, Acts chapter 2. I knew this was going to happen. Uh, Acts chapter 2. I want to show you something, and we'll just sort of wrap it up there in the book of Acts. What I'm trying to show you is the strategy of God. God's strategy in calling these 12 apostles. We've seen that it was a strategy aimed to replace Jesus or represent Jesus on earth. That's a strategy. We've seen that it was a strategy to replace corrupted apostate leadership, to restore right representation of God on earth. And aren't you glad that the Pharisees were not the proper representation of God on earth? (laughs) Amen? But the disciples were. Jesus was. And the last sort of element of the strategy that I want you to see is a theme we've sort of hammered on the past six months. Uh, But I want you to see it explicitly and hopefully from a little bit of a different angle. Acts chapter 2. The theme, of course, is that God uses weak vessels to magnify his own glory. We've seen that over and over, haven't we, in the past six months? Um, So as I was working on the sermon, I was thinking, I'm going to have to tell them this again. But this is the Lord's word and this is what we need. And I just want to show you this from the book of Acts, that these confirmatory signs all were meant to confirm weak people so that a glorious God would get all the praise. All right, this is Acts 2, 
How about we go to verse 22, and I'll hop around a little bit. So this is Peter taking his stand with the 11. Judas has betrayed um, the Lord Jesus, and he has been replaced at this point. And Peter stands, and he says in verse 22, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourself know. My point there, of course, is to say that this man was attested or confirmed by God with miracles and wonders and signs. The signs confirmed the man. Now, verse 43. After Jesus has, or Peter rather, has finished his sermon, men repent. Verse 43. This is sort of a, a synopsis of what's going on. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through whom? Through the apostles. All right, these were confirmatory signs authenticating these apostles. And we're going to keep reading on. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. And notice this last verse. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. The apostles are at the center of this community. Ephesians 2.20 is going to say that they're at the base of it. That they're the foundation. All of these wonderful things are happening. Peter is preaching. The Jews are repenting. It's wonderful. And all the praise was going to whom? Verse 47. God. They, the, the church, was praising God. They knew Peter. They knew John. They knew these men. They knew that they were not worthy of praise. And they knew that the work they were doing in preaching, when Peter preached the sermon, they didn't go up to Peter and say, Oh, Peter, best sermon I ever heard. You're the greatest preacher in Galilee or wherever. We love you. We want to follow you. Where's your church? We want to go there. No, they knew it wasn't about Peter. They knew it wasn't about John. They knew that these men didn't have the capacities and abilities that they did by working it up within themselves. They were men, weak, ordinary men like you and I, empowered by the Spirit of God to do wonderful things for Him. That, friend, is the calling. And that's the calling you've been called to. And God has put you in such a scenario where you will do things, you have things to do that seem way larger than you. You don't have the capacity. That's exactly why you're there. You don't have the capacity. And God delights to work in situations like that, where he empowers his servant to do wonderful things so that everyone looks in and says, praise God, because I know him, and he could not do that. God must be at work here. When you find yourself in a situation like that, don't fret, don't panic, don't be full of discouragement and fear. Remind yourself, 
He who called you is faithful, and He will do it. He has sovereignly situated you where you are. The responsibility is on Him. He will see to your fruitfulness. All you have to do is seek to be faithful, and He will accomplish His purpose through you. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that we have in this text a reminder of Your sovereign divine strategy that you use the weakest people to demonstrate your power so that, as we saw in the book of Acts, so that all the praise goes to you alone. Father, we confess that we have been glory thieves, and we ask that you would pardon us for thinking that it was about us. Lord, help us to repent, uh, to turn from our fear of the tasks you've set before us, And to stand with courage and confidence knowing that you have brought us where we are. And you will help us, parent. You will help us in the difficult work scenario. You will help us to accomplish your purpose. You will see to it that we will be fruitful. And that, Lord, is all of our hope. And Lord, we thank you last and most of all for Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.